0: We do need him, don't we? We have needed him like we didn't know we'd need him starting like, what, a year and a half ago. And you're going to need him when this sermon's done. (laughs) If I were choosing these again, I would not have chosen Phineas. Let me just… Oh, I'm not supposed to say his name until we get there. It's a surprise. The story of God includes the stories of people who we barely observe, but who have changed the course of history rather dramatically. The world has changed when God calls ordinary people to do extraordinary things. Ignore the camera guy, it's, you'll see it on the website eventually, so uh, just, to, just go where you need to go. <laughs> delete those. <laughs> okay, the story of God, we'll start all over again. No, we won't do that. So, I don't know where we were, though, but we are exploring the lives of men and women in the Bible whose stories have kind of changed the narrative uh, as we've gone along and shaped our world, uh, but they are usually invisible to us. And I, we did this because we are invisibles, right? I don't think any of us are going to be uh, cataloged in the history of the South Bay. Maybe a few of you, but maybe we, we don't know yet, but you get my point. This morning we come to a story that's rather odd. If you have your Bibles, turn to Numbers chapter 25. It's the fourth book of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and then Numbers. And let me set the stage by putting this story into some context. Beginning in Numbers 20, there is a transition that begins. Um, Aaron and Miriam die, and they begin to make this this change from the generation that wandered in the wilderness who knew of Egypt, who refused to believe the promises of God when they had the opportunity and obey, and so they're all dying out, and now this new generation is is taking the position of leadership. And God begins to use these new leaders, these, this younger generation, uh, to defeat His enemies. In uh, beginning in chapters number… In, it's just distracting, I'm sorry. Beginning in, in Numbers chapter 20… You no, know, you're fine. Don't ignore me. There you do. <laughs> <laughs> I know, just… Beginning in Numbers 22, the Moabite king, his name is Balak he hires a seer or a a psychic from way far away, up in northern Mesopotamia. And he hires him, his name is Balaam, to come, and he wants him to curse Israel. Because he figures, if I can get God to curse Israel, then they'll go away and I don't have to face them in battle. And so Balak wants to manipulate the God of Israel to curse them rather than bless them. He wants to weaken them militarily, so that the Moabites and the Midianites can defeat them and and drive them out of the land. But this psychic, Balaam, couldn't stop God. He had every intention of blessing his people, God did, and giving them this land promised from the days of Abraham. And you can read about Balaam in Numbers 22, 23, and 24. Balaam knew that heathen gods They could be manipulated. I mean, after all, they were kind of creations that they made, so if you made them, you can manipulate them. And so, it must have been quite an adjustment for Balaam to come face to face with Yahweh, the one true God. But God spoke to the psychic, Balaam, you know, it's rather famous, through his donkey, right? And God talks to Balaam uh, through his donkey. And Balaam found it was impossible to curse the people of Israel. It just couldn't be done. And so the account seems to end in verse 25 of Numbers 24 when Moses writes this. Then Balaam got up and returned home, and Balak went his own way. The prophet Balaam goes home, Balak the the king goes home. And I kind of picture Balaam, you know, going back to Mesopotamia with his tail between his legs, trudging, probably didn't get his full payment because, you know, he didn't actually get God to curse them. And so we come to verse to Numbers chapter 25, where trouble is brewing, big time trouble. And we're left with this question, will this generation also lose out of the promises of God because of their rebellion? That's what their parents did. Will this generation be any different? So here's the story with a rather interesting solution. They are camped at Abel Shittim, Numbers chapter twenty-five, verse one. While Israel was staying in Shittim, okay, they're they're camped by a grove of acacia trees on the east side of the Jordan River. Okay, you got it. uh, See out there, it is amazing. You got the oh, you can't see the Sea Galilee, but you got the Dead Sea. You've got Jericho on the west bank of the Jordan River. You've got Abel Shatim on the east bank. And then a place that's going to come into prominence, Beth Peor. I threw in Nebo. If you've been there with me in Jordan, we've been to the top of Mount Nebo. Kind of gets you the, the sense of where that is. Amman is where modern-day Amman is located. So they're camped at Abel Shatim. They can look across the valley, across the Jordan River. And they can even see uh, Jericho. It is from Abel Shittim or from Shittim that that in Joshua 2, God will lead Joshua uh, to take them into the land. So, 25 verse 1. While Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women, who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. The people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods, So Israel yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. You're like, what? Are you kidding me? This is exactly what their parents had done at at the foot of Mount Sinai. Moses is up on Mount Sinai. They come down, he comes down, and this is what's going on. But here, the, the women of Midian began to seduce the men of Israel into sexual sin and to sacrifice to their gods. Most pagan gods were fertility gods, you know, help the land, help the crops. And so, the worship involved sex. In response to their sin, God sends a plague. We're not sure exactly when the plague begins. We know when it stops, down in verse 8. Then the plague against the Israelites stopped, but those who had died in the plague numbered 24,000. We'll get back to that. What is this Baal of Peor? Back in verse 3. Well, Baal Peor is a local deity worshipped by the Moabites. The word Baal just means Lord. It means master, ruler. It did become eventually a technical name for a Canaanite god. And they had local deities at different locations. So there were lots of different Baals. And so there is not just one Baal, there's a lot of them which is why we find here Baal Peor, the Baal that was located at Peor or something like that. It becomes in the Bible a proper name, but it's really just a description, the Baal of Peor. Peor, I'm not sure what it means. It might refer to the mountaintop from where Balaam and Balak could spy on Israel. It could have something to do with the literal meaning of the word Peor, which means opening which in the context of something of of Canaanite worship, it might be that's where the the sacrifices and, and and the sexual rites took place at the top of the hill. But in any case, Baal Peor is really the Baal of Peor or simply the Lord of Peor, which distinguishes that Baal from any other Baal. And here is a significant time that Israel falls into immorality and idolatry And it actually is mentioned in the New Testament as an example for believers, but we're going to get there too. So, Balaam's last hurrah. The question is, how did this happen? Who who let these people into the camp? Where did these women come from? These Moabite women seem to show up from nowhere. They sort of appear to be prostitutes, and they lure the men away. Remember, though, these men, this generation doesn't remember Egypt they've been eating what for 40 years manna and quail and not a lot of spices and so they prepare a feast for them it's very enticing and so they entice them to this feast and and once they do that this feasting leads to sex which leads to idolatry but how does all that happen you fast forward to Numbers chapter 31, and we have it explained. When, when they're talking about what's going to happen to these people, it says, God says, have you allowed the women to live? He asked them. Verse 16, they were the ones who followed Balaam's advice, oh, and enticed the Israelites to be unfaithful to the Lord in the Peor incident, so that a plague struck the Lord's people. So, so how did this happen? Balaam. Who made this happen is the real question. Balaam had apparently figured out, I cannot change God. But who can I change? Oh, these stiff-necked people who are so prone to wander. And if I change them, I can't change God who has said, If you do this, then I've it. it's the same as if I've cursed them. And so God's strength that he doesn't change and that he keeps his word, he uses that against Israel for the advantage of Balak and the Moabites. It's a stroke of genius. And he actually must have been congratulating himself all the way to his meeting with Balak when he kind of explained the plan. Because he'd figure out it was impossible to persuade God to stop blessing Israel. So if I get them to disobey then God will take out his anger on them. And once he's angry at them, he'll do something bad. It was an ingenious plan. It was incredibly simple. And if he could induce them, he could trick them into following other gods, God would take his revenge. So Balaam comes to Balak, and he says, here's what you do. Invite the men to dinner. You know, feed them some good stuff. Lure them into sex and idol worship. God hates it. God will curse them. Problem solved. And it worked. Verse 3. So Israel yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. The Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of these people, kill them, and expose them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the Lord's fierce anger may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to Israel's judges, each of you must put to death those of your people who have yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor. Enter our invisible. Finally, right? You've been waiting for him. Phineas. Israel's facing a plague, and it's in need of of some atonement to cover up the sin. And what's being done? We don't know. But then something happens. Verse 6. Then an Israelite man brought into the camp a Midianite woman right before the eyes of Moses. And the whole assembly of Israel, while they were weeping at the entrance to the tent of meeting... Moses has told the people what to do, but so far we know there's no record that they actually did anything about it. And then God begins to do something, and there's this plague. We don't know when it started. We don't know what it was. We do know when it stopped. But I think verse 6 is very significant. Why is this all so serious to God? Because just at that moment, one of the Israelites comes, he brings his friend, his Midianite or his Moabite woman, and he takes him where Moses and everybody can see him to his tent. And he didn't take her to his tent for tea. Right in front of Moses in plain sight of the community. Well, they were what? They're weeping. People are dying. They realize their sin And thousands are dying. It says the whole assembly of Israel while they were weeping at the entrance to the tent of meeting. These seem to be the godly people who have gathered together to mourn the sin and and the death which this sin had produced. And they're mourning all of this rebellion. But that's all they were doing. Just mourning. Verse 7. When Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, saw this, saw um, th- this, what's Zimri is his name, but we'll get there. He left the assembly, took a spear in his hand, and followed the Israelite into the tent. He drove the spear into both of them, right through the Israelite man and into the woman's stomach. So what were they doing? Then the plague against the Israelites was stopped, but those who died in the plague numbered 24,000. While Israel seems frozen in shock, the grandson of Aaron, the high priest, Phineas, takes a spear into the tent where these two were probably having sex and put the spear through two of them, one time, one motion. And here's our invisible. Phineas, the grandson of Aaron, the, he is the son of the current high priest, Eleazar, Eleazar. And as you follow him through his life, we're not going to do that. If you do, you will find that he really serves God faithfully and Israel faithfully as long as he lives. But we meet him here as part of the assembly at the tent of meeting, weeping and mourning over sin. And when Phineas sees Zimri, and you're like, Zimri? Well, we know his name. Verse 14, the name of the Israelite who was killed with the Midianite woman was Zimri, son of Salu, the leader of a Simeonite family. And the name of the Midianite woman who was put to death was Cosby, daughter of Zur, a tribal chief of a Midianite family. This is all so serious that the scriptures name these paramours. But Zimri's behavior goes beyond shocking. He isn't just any old Israelite. He's a man in line to lead one of the great Israelite families, the family of the tribe of Simeon. And the Midianite woman isn't just any woman, but the daughter of a Midianite tribal king, chief. Maybe Zimri thought he was above God's law, but he discovered rather painfully that he was not. His actions are nothing less than spiritual treason against Yahweh, who has made His presence and His care known for Israel, known to Israel for like 40 years and his behavior is shocking and brazen. And when he did it, it's like an in-your-face God. And his attitude is one of, of complete self-autonomy. I can do what I want, when I want, wherever I want. I don't answer to Moses. I don't answer to my father. I don't answer to our religious laws. I answer to who? I answer to myself. And it's my life, and I'll live it the way I want to live it. And I don't care what the consequences are. Deal with it. And so it was up to Phineas to bring the consequences because nobody else moved. They're in this massive service of mourning over the rebellion against God. And when Phineas sees Zimri continue the rebellion, he's filled with some righteous indignation. And he does what? He does what God had told the leaders to do. He kills Zimri and his Midianite lover, Cosby. And that courageous action, it's lonely at the top in leadership sometimes, that action stopped the curse. It covered what was going on because the idolatry of Israel had led to the death of 24,000 people before someone stood in the gap and said, let's stop this. Let's cover the sin. Verse 10, the Lord said to Moses, "Phineas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned my anger away from the Israelites. Since he was as zealous for my honor among them as I am, I did not put an end to them in my zeal. Therefore, tell him I am making my covenant of peace with him. He and his descendants will have a covenant of lasting priesthood because he was zealous for the honor of his God and made atonement for the Israelites. God commends Phineas for being zealous, energetic for the honor of God. And God basically says, you know, he did what I told him to do, and he has defended my reputation. He's stemmed my wrath. And at the moment of Zimri's death, the plague ends. Verse 11, Phinehas has turned my anger away from the Israelites. Here's how the story ends to make it complete in verse 16. The Lord said to Moses, treat the Midianites as enemies and kill them. They treated you as enemies when they deceived you in the Peor incident involving their sister Cosby, the daughter of a Midianite leader, the woman who was killed when the plague came as a result of that incident. So the plague ends, and God says, just deal with the Midianites. Judge them. So what are we supposed to learn from the incident at Abel Shatim or at Baal Peor? Now, a text like this can lead to some bad application. So, I want to get that part out of the way first. You can misapply this text. What do we not learn from the story of Phineas? We we do not learn, let me be clear, we do not learn two things. Number one, we do not learn that God supports violence in our quest for justice. God doesn't support violence in our quest for justice. The text does not justify violence in seeking justice in the name of God. Do not read this text And conclude that we're justified or even encouraged to bomb an abortion clinic or shoot an abortionist or perform other acts of terrorism in the name of God. That's not what's going on here. Phineas is not a terrorist. Israel in those days was a theocracy. God was ruling. God was their king. God had ordered death for those who had willfully broken his law. Phineas was acting under the divine orders of God. Today, we, God has ordained what? A human government to make those decisions. Justice is meted out by a government, not us. And so I don't find here any sanction for lawlessness or vigilanteism. That's not what's happening. Second, we do not learn that God enjoys mass killing. Some will call God a a genocidal maniac from the Old Testament. Some will look at this Old Testament passage and think, well, if Phineas wasn't a terrorist, then then God was. They struggle, people do, with all of the death and the killing in the Old Testament. And that's that's a difficult issue, but let me make some observations about that issue. First, most of the violent actions condoned by God primarily come from a very specific period of time, It's not really throughout the entire Old Testament. There's a lot of killing in the Bible that God does not condone. And yes, there are times when God intervened to judge a people group because of their sin and their evil, but He does that even to Israel. 24,000 Israelites are killed in this incident for their sin. But most of the time when God is considered guilty of genocide, it's it's from this specific period of time. It's, it's not throughout the entire Old Testament. This is a unique period in the days of Joshua and Moses. When Israel moves into the land, they do fight the Canaanites. When God sends Israel to do battle in these days, His intention is not to destroy. His intention is to drive them out, the Canaanites. He was what? He was clearing a space For his presence. The land was God's, and he was clearing it for Israel to live there, to be with him. Context is very important. Second observation, these battles, these mass killings, sometimes they're not based on ethnicity. So it's not genocide. Genocide is the deliberate killing of a large group of people, especially a large ethnic group or a nation. But these people are killed based on what? Not their ethnicity, but but that they occupy the land that God had given to people. Or they were very aggressive and antagonistic to the people of God. The Canaanites were given plenty of opportunity to avoid war, to avoid the violence. But they chose not to respond to the opportunity that God gave them. And so we see here when his own people rebelled, they faced judgment too. It goes both ways. And third observation, the people who are killed normally are extremely wicked, extremely wicked. And God didn't want them luring His people away to that. These people practiced child sacrifice. They had a, a, I don't even want to say it, they had arms, some of these Moloch, the God Moloch, his arms were like this, they'd heat him up and put their live babies on it. They would do bestiality. All of this, it reflected their values. It reflected their beliefs. And there were many reasons for the judgment of God to fall on them. And the Old Testament is clear that God was not using the Israelites because they were so great. They're not the best either. He uses them because He chose them. That's it. And the people living in Canaan were so wicked that God just used Israel to accomplish what needed to happen. And today, people criticize God because He doesn't end evil like we think He should. But guess what? (laughs) Here He does, and they don't like that either. Here's the beginning of a larger project of restoring the community that was lost in the Garden of Eden. And God's presence was to be with Israel This isn't just finding a nice spot and setting up camp. It's the beginning of what God is doing to restore people, humanity to himself. And to do this, he needed to remove the the gods who these people worshipped. This is probably too brief a treatment of this subject. If you're interested, ask Ken. It's my favorite standard line. But it's a start. Our bigger question this morning is this. What do we learn from the story of Phineas? Are you ready? I think Phineas, if he was standing here today, he would ask us three questions. Because things haven't changed all that much since the days they were camped at Shittim. Question number one. Are you experimenting with sexual sin. at the center of this story is sexual immorality. Paul reminds the Corinthian believers who struggled with sexual immorality of this incident at Baal Peor. 1 Corinthians 10:8 We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did and in one day 23,000 of them died. Same incident. You're so sharp. Some of you noticed, Paul says 23,000, and the number says 24,000. But Paul says in one day. So perhaps the 24,000 in one day is the plague, and the other 1,000 are the people who were involved in it, and, you know, it, it's solvable. But we tend to think of America today as the most sexually promiscuous and degenerate group in history. We're probably wrong about that, by the way. Sexual immorality was just as enticing and enslaving long before pornography was online and long before, you know, same-sex marriage was allowed. Zimri flaunted his sexual immorality in front of the people. He experimented sexually against the clear commands of God and he flaunted it. And that experience... That, ex- that, uh, that experimentation cost him his life. Does it seem too severe? Only if we think that the le- length of our lives is more important than the honor of God. Only if we think that the length of life is more important than the honor of God. Phineas teaches us to see that we deserve death, and far worse if we indulge in sexual sin. 24,000 people die because of their immorality. That's a lot of people. I don't know how many students are are living on campus at SC these days. Maybe that many. That's a lot of people. All that death happened, Paul says, for our sake so that we could learn a spear through a stomach, a plague wiping out thousands so that you and I would feel the awful offense of sexual sin and run from it. Run. 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a, a person commits are outside the body. Whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. It's a sin. You've got to run from it. It's the only solution. Verse 19, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You're not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, what? Honor God with your bodies. See, purity is not primarily about sex purity is not primarily about what you do or what you don't do. It's not primarily about you watch what you watch or what you read, what you say. Purity is about what is about God, and it is about His honor. And so many times when we talk about purity, we do it in terms of you're waiting for the list of do's and don'ts. Can I go here? Should I read this book? Should I not? Is it wrong to see this movie? Is this t-shirt too revealing? You know, should I listen to this music? Which are legitimate questions, but they are secondary to the real issue. God has a stake in your moral purity. He has called you to purity. He is honored when you walk in purity. And so the real question is not, do I want this? Would I enjoy this? Do I need this? But will this honor God? Will it honor him for me to read this? Will he be glorified if I date this person? Will I reflect badly on the Lord and his reputation if I wear this? Purity is not about you or your desires. It's about doing something and making a decision that you want to honor God in this area of your life. Purity means living so that God's reputation is enhanced by the choices you make. And a lot of Christians spend a lot of time trying to figure out and worry about their past. That is a waste of time. When it's all said and done, it is grace, the seemingly chaotic, cavalier nature of God, His grace that's too good to be true, which has no strings attached, this one-way love that forms this inseparable connection to the God of repeat offenders. Full stop. You cannot change the past, but you can do something about the future. And by God's grace, you can begin to be pure starting today. You don't have to live in guilt or fear or shame. What did Jesus say to these people? Stand up and walk. Get out of the muck and the mire of defeat. Stand up and walk. He's got two more questions. Are you serious? Number two, Phineas would say, are you flirting with idols? We tend to think of idolatry as something of the past. That, that you know it's it happened back then there's eastern mysticism We got a bunch of idols and statues we certainly don't have any in our culture <laughs> we think of idolatry as confined to what they did at Baal Peor Timothy Keller has a great definition of idolatry he says is it, it is anything more it is anything more important to you than god anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than god anything you seek to give you what only God can give, which covers a lot of ground these days. What are our idols? I could list a lot of them, I'm just gonna list three and then a bunch more for you to think about. First is our identity. Your identity, is it in your work, your skills, your looks, anything else? You know, you don't think you measure up? When our identity is secured in God, then we can live in freedom. And when we fall short, God's love is never going to fail us because my identity is in Christ. Is it all about how many likes you can get on social media? Is our value more on who I am than who God is? For many, identity is a God. Second, money, consumerism, obvious. doesn't matter if you're broke or you're wealthy. The pursuit of money and acquisition for stuff is an idol for many because we trust our money more than we trust our God. Third, comfort. Comfort's an idol. There's an endless list of things that have come along to bring comfort to our lives. Our lives are so much easier. You know, washing the clothes, you throw it in and you go do something else. It was not like that for a long time. And we have made our lives easier and more comfortable than at any other time in history. And comfort can be an idol. Because while it's not bad, it can damage when it becomes the main pursuit of our life. Because if comfort is an idol, we're going to struggle when God calls us to do something uncomfortable. I could go on. Cell phones can be an idol. Sex, we've talked about that enough. Well, not enough, but entertainment, Netflix. Family can be an idol. These days, you know what I think is one creeping in is freedom. We forget that no matter what the government does, we're freeing Christ. That's our freedom. So it might help you to identify an idol this morning. Let me ask you this question, what is so central and so essential to your life that if you lost it, life would not feel worth living? What is so central to your life and so essential to your life that if you lost it, why go on? What is it? Whatever that is, is your idol. Are you flirting with idols? Number three, are you zealous for God's honor? Or would you do what Phineas did? (laughs) Phineas dealt with sin in a brutal way, but it was necessary. It is in God's response to Phineas that I think we learned the most important lesson from his life. Verse 10, the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned my anger away. Why? Since, how? Since he was zealous for my honor among them as I am, I did not put an end to them in my zeal. He displayed a zeal for the Lord by taking action to stop a plague and judge the arrogance and the idolatry of Israel. God said that Phinehas' zeal reflected his own So what does it mean to be zealous? To be zealous means I I have focus, I have passion, I have a commitment, I've got this desire. It means I have, there's energy to my faith. There is an enthusiasm to my faith. It carries the idea of, of being all in, of being sold out, I'll do whatever. In Revelation 3, Jesus said to the church at Laodicea, So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. How different is that for a spear between you? I mean, it should make us cringe. God is not into moderate. God is not into lukewarm. He's not in the middle of the road devotion to Jesus. Zeal is important. And caring deeply about God, not moderately caring about God, is important. Why does God hate a lack of zeal so much? Mostly because a person in that condition doesn't even know it. They think they're fine. They slip into a state of of just indifference. And they don't care about their own spiritual condition. Nothing matters to them. After all, room temperature is very comfortable, and it feels right because they're just like everybody else around them, not too hot, not too cold. They're doing fine, or so they think. Such a person is unreachable unless you shock them out of their condition, which Jesus says, what I'm spitting you out of my mouth. That's a shock. How zealous are we for the honor of God? We're not Phineas. We're not gathered together before the tent of meeting and of developing theocracy. But how zealous are we for the honor of our God? We should be so zealous that we proclaim Him and live by the fact that the sinless Son of God came into this world to do what? To take the spear for us. We should be so zealous to make that proclamation of our faith in the death and the resurrection of Christ, our passion, our constant lifestyle. We should be so zealous for the honor of God that it changes our lifestyle, So that we kill the deeds of the flesh, not with a javelin, but by turning again and again to the nails on the cross and those boards where Jesus died. How zealous are we for the honor of God? He was, God was zealous enough for his own honor to send his son to satisfy his wrath against the sin of us, our sin. Because it is in the death of of the perfectly righteous Jesus, that we begin to understand and contemplate the honor of God. Only on the cross do we see this sinless, powerful cleansing that will honor God the way He deserves. The moderate Christian has a moderate Christ who makes moderate demands. Are you keeping Jesus at an arm's length so that you don't have to listen to what he really wants from you? If so, you are no Phineas. And when the focus of the Christian life becomes the, Christian, uh, the life of the Christian, where we get worse, not better. When the focus of the Christian life becomes the life of the Christian and not the Savior, we get worse, not better. Phineas challenges our faith and our lives. Are we experimenting with sexual sins? Are we flirting with our idols? Are we zealous for the honor of God? Because I believe the only churches that will thrive in any meaningful way in our day will be places where sin doesn't shock us and grace still amazes us maybe be a place where we're not shocked with sin whatever you're doing come we'll deal with it because we are overwhelmed with the grace of our God let's pray father Phineas (laughs) oh Phineas I think I'm beginning to understand why so many people used to name their kids Phineas But I pray that we would nurture His heart in ours, that You would help us to be honest, not cold, not lukewarm, but that our hearts would burn and flame with passion for the honor of God, because that will change everything. In Jesus' name. Amen.